0: Father, um, today is a day when we remember how Jesus Christ, all those years ago, was seated on a donkey and he came riding into Jerusalem, fulfilling the prophecy that that said, Behold our king, gentle and mounted on a donkey. Um, Lord, you revealed yourself as king that day and the, the crowds that were there, they took off their cloaks and they laid them on the ground so that The Lord Jesus could ride over them, signifying that they were willing to receive him as their king to rule over them. Um, But then, only a week later, they were shouting for him to be crucified when they saw that he would not be able to to give them the world that they wanted. And Lord, we just sang a song that um, declares our own intentions to, to have Jesus be our king, Lord, but also in that song, we we understand that uh, where he's leading us to is is to a cross. And the world that he's giving us is not this one, but the, the world to come. And Lord, I pray that we have all understood that, that as we have laid our cloaks on the ground, we have done so knowing that to follow this king is to follow him to a cross, to follow him unto the denying of ourselves. Um, I pray that we would see that, uh, that he himself is the prize, um, that to have such a king is worth going to a cross for. Lord, may he be the one uh, drawing us and not some side benefit that we might think he's giving us, like prosperity in this world or anything like that. Um, help us to come for him. And the fact that he is life itself, he is the Holy One, he is truth, he is our refuge. Help us to come to him for who he is, and if we are coming to him for who he is, there is nothing, uh, no cross that we would be unwilling to take up for his sake. Lord, we pray that as we come to your word, that that truth would be sunk deeper into our hearts, that we would... um, See him as as the one who makes our lives sweet no matter what we go through in this life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're still working through the book of Ruth and we're, Lord willing, going to finish up Ruth chapter 1 today. Ruth chapter 1, we're looking at verses 19 to 22. And it just so happens that The events that we read about in this book uh, happen during this time of year, March going into April. um, That is when the events of this book take place way back then. But let me go ahead and read verses 19 to 22. It says, So they, that's Naomi and Ruth, so they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned and with her, Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. In the epilogue of her book, Shadow of the Almighty, Elizabeth Elliot shares one among several quotes from her late husband, Jim Elliot. And these quotes that she shared spoke of his desire for God to use up his life for the sake of Christ. He would have been the one singing that last song the loudest if he was here. Jim Elliott, of course, was the missionary who gave his life on January 8th, 1956, trying to bring the gospel to the Auka Indians of Ecuador. And in Jim Elliott's attempt to reach these people for Christ, he and his four companions were speared to death. And this quote among the several that Elizabeth Elliot shared that I'm going to share with you, this quote was an allusion back to Exodus chapter 15, verses 22 to 25. And I just want to read that passage. Exodus 15, 22 to 25. This is after God has delivered Israel from the land of Egypt and he's taken them through the Red Sea. And once the people got through, he caused the water to fall back upon all the Egyptian army who was pursuing them, wiping them out. And they've sung a song praising God for his great deliverance. And then we come to verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, that should sound familiar. When they came to Mara, they could not drink the waters of Mara for they were bitter. Therefore it was named Mara. So the people grumbled at Moses saying, "What shall we drink?" Then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. For Jim Elliot, this passage illustrated a principle that would no doubt serve to sustain Elizabeth during the days following her husband's martyrdom. And here is what Jim said. This is the quote she included in that book. He said, Ah, how many Maras have been sweetened by a simple, satisfying glimpse of the tree and the love which underwent its worst conflict there. Yes, the cross is the tree that sweetens the waters." Love never faileth. That's the quote that that she shared. And that lesson that that Jim Elliot learned and that he lived his life believing and believed it unto the very end, that is a lesson that every believer must learn. We all face our share of Mara's bitter waters. And the only thing that can make those bitter waters restorative or refreshing to us and sweet to us, is the cross of Christ. In the book of Ruth, we have recorded here for us the true story of one woman's journey toward learning that very lesson. And that woman that we've been following is Naomi. And my prayer this morning is that her story will help all of us who trust in Christ to learn this same lesson so that when we encounter our own bitter waters, we can have hope and joy in the midst of grief because we know that God is accomplishing something beautiful through it for his glory and our good. God is working a beautiful plan through a bitter providence. And that's the theme of this message, a beautiful plan working through a bitter providence. And we're going to start looking at The second half of that theme, a bitter providence. And we've seen how Naomi has been facing that very thing, a bitter providence. Providence is God's working of all circumstances together to accomplish his plan. And for Naomi, right now, that means a life of bitterness for her. And that's what we've been seeing, and that's what we're going to continue to see here. Look at verse 19. It says, so they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? We're told very briefly about Naomi and Ruth's journey. He just says it in one phrase. They both went until they came to Bethlehem. And just to give you a picture of this journey that they would have taken, pretend I'm standing up here holding a map facing you, and pretend my forearm is the Dead Sea. Remember, you've got the Sea of Galilee up here, and then the Jordan River coming down to the Dead Sea, and Moab would be to the east of the sea, occupying the southern half of that sea. Here's Moab right here. If Ruth and Moab were journeying from the north part of the land of Moab, they would have to... And this is assuming they didn't have water transport across the Red Sea. I don't know if they did or not. But if they had to walk it the whole way, they had to go 20 miles up the eastern coast of the Red Sea. They had to go down the valley into the Jordan River Valley, 10 miles. And then they would have to travel down 20 more miles to Bethlehem, which was five miles south of Jerusalem. That's the journey they would have had to take. 50 miles as the crow flies, and they don't have wings, so we know it'd take a lot longer for them with all the ups and downs, trying to get there. So quite a journey, but the uh, the narrator doesn't want to dwell on that. So I probably shouldn't have even gone into all that. But that's what happened. They went until they came, to Bethlehem, and when they get there, verse 19 tells us that their arrival causes a great commotion in the city. And my translation uses the word stirred. All the city was stirred because of them. And this is the Hebrew word hum. And it's kind of like an automata, onomatopoeia, a word that sounds like the very thing it's describing. There was a hum about the city as Ruth and Naomi came. And that word hum is defined by one Hebrew lexicon as to be in an uproar. Another defines it as to be disturbed or to be in a commotion. And yet another has to go wild. This is the word. When they came, the city was stirred. And we see this same word over in 1 Samuel 4. You could just flip a few pages over there. 1 Samuel, which is after the book of Ruth. 1 Samuel 4, verse 5. This is when... The Philistines are battling the Israelites, and the Philistines have defeated them once, but now the Israelites bring their secret weapon, or so they think, the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark comes uh, into the camp, verse 5 of chapter 4. As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth resounded, or shook, That word for resound or shake, that's the same word, whom, here in Ruth. You also see it, you don't have to turn there, but 1 Kings chapter 1 and verse 45, which is describing when King Solomon was anointed king. And his brother, who was trying to steal the throne from him, Adonijah, he's having a party, but then he hears this great commotion happening somewhere and someone tells him it's his brother Solomon who kind of beaten him, beat, beat him to the punch, being anointed as king. And that verse says the city is in an uproar. It's the same word. So Ruth and Naomi come to Bethlehem and this great commotion breaks out as they come. Now what does that imply about Naomi? Well, it implies that she was kind of a big deal in Bethlehem before she left. You know, when I came back from California... There was no, nobody going wild. Oh, Josh is back. But that's what has happened with Naomi coming back to Bethlehem. The city's gone wild. After being gone for at least 10 years, at her return, along with Ruth, they're the talk of the town. And all the women of the city ask, is this Naomi? And there's a few different ways you could take that question. It could just be a rhetorical question expressing people's excitement Oh, is this Naomi? Excitement over a beloved citizen's return? Um, This question could be a real question. It may be that over a decade's worth of loss and struggle has left Naomi looking significantly different than when she had left. So I think, is that Naomi? You think of, have you ever seen those time lapse photographs of the president? from when he goes into office and then four years or eight years later, his head is gray by the time he's done. He's got wrinkles all over his face just because of the weight of the office. Is this Naomi? Or this question could be a comment on what she has lost. Naomi was, judging by their reaction to her arrival, she was a prominent and respected citizen back in the day. And her life was full, consisting of a husband and two sons. But now she's back with husband and sons nowhere to be seen. There's just a lone Moabite woman at her side. And when they say, is this Naomi? They may be saying it in the sense of, is this all that's left of the Naomi we knew? Write these passages down. There's Isaiah 23, and verse 7. Isaiah 23, verse 7. And Lamentations, chapter 2, verse 15. Those two passages ask that question in that sense. The Isaiah passage is about Tyre, and God is describing the destruction that will come upon Tyre to the degree that those who look at Tyre will say, is this that beautiful city? As they look at it lying in ruins. Uh, Lamentations asks the same question, but it's regarding Jerusalem. Is this that beautiful city that we once knew? You wonder if they're asking it with that sense about Naomi. Is this Naomi who we knew before? Then we come to verses 20 through the first half of 21. In response to their question, Naomi said to them, verse 20, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Whatever their question, is this Naomi conveyed, whether it was excitement or doubt about her identity or shock. Naomi's reaction here seems to answer all three of those possibilities. If they're excited over her arrival, Naomi's saying, don't be. They should instead mourn with her and for her. If that question is expressing doubt about whether or not it's her, she validates that doubt by letting them know that, no, I'm not Naomi. I'm not the same person who left here over a decade ago. Or if it's a third possibility, if they're shocked at what she's lost, she's explaining what happened. She says, don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. She says, don't call me that. That's not who I am anymore. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. And remember, a little earlier in the chapter, we encountered that That root word for bitter. When she's talking with her daughters-in-law, verse. Where did it go? She says it. It is harder for me than for you. It is more bitter for me than for you. I can't find it at the moment, but look back and you'll see it. What did you say? Thirteen. Thirteen. Thank you. Halfway through the verse, she says, No, my daughters, for it is harder, or it is more bitter for me than for you. So she's still stuck on that. She says, Call me Mara, bitter. That's who I am. And we can envision the women asking, Why should we call you that? And she explains, Because the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, But the Lord has brought me back empty. Now, we might read that and think that she is blaspheming here. But she's not. Naomi knows who is sovereign over all heaven and earth. She knows who controls the seasons, who controls the rainfall, who controls the harvest. She knows who was in control of the famine that was the occasion for her departure from Bethlehem back in verse 1. She knows who holds life and death in his hands and who it is who opens and closes the womb. She knows who was in control when her husband died and when her two sons died and when she had no grandchildren left over. She knows these things. And what she's saying here is not anything that God doesn't say about himself elsewhere. For example, if you go over to Exodus chapter 4, when God is dealing with Moses. And he's saying, Moses, I want to use you to deliver my people. And Moses is coming up with every excuse he can think of why it's not him, why God chose wrong. And one of the reasons was, Lord, I just, I'm not a good public speaker. I'm heavy of mouth. I can't talk. And what does God say to him? Exodus 4, verse 11, the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? He takes credit for those things. Go to Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah 45, starting in verse 5. The Lord is describing himself here. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So Ruth or Naomi is not saying anything here that God has not already said about himself. God is not at all shy about taking credit for these types of hard things. It is a bitter providence that has brought Naomi to this place of emptiness. And she's just being honest here. She's honest about how these circumstances of life that God is in control of, she's being honest about how this tastes to her. They taste bitter. She's not blaspheming God here. She's just stating the facts. She's saying, God is in control of this. He has planned this for my life. And boy, I don't really like it. It tastes bitter. Naomi is going through her own version of what Job went through. When Job lost all of his possessions and all of his children, Job did this, according to Job chapter 1, verses 20 to 22, it says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord." And then the narrator lets us know that Job wasn't wrong in saying that because he says in that verse, through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he ascribe unseemliness to God. Then, on top of all that, when Job's body was afflicted with painful boils from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head, his wife tells him to just curse God and die. But Job replies in chapter 2, verse 10, he says, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Later on in that book, and you can write this one down, Job 27, Job 27, verse 2, Job says something very similar to what Naomi said, Over in Ruth 1, verse 20. In Job 27, 2, Job says, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty who has embittered my soul. It's the same verb as when, if I remember right, when Naomi said, The Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. Job says, The Lord has embittered my soul. He's brought me to something that I can't handle. Back in Ruth 1, verse 21, after after saying, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty, she says, Why do you call me Naomi? Still addressing these women. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. Naomi uses courtroom type language here when she says, Yahweh has witnessed against me. The tragedies that have befallen her, she takes as God testifying against her. She seems to think that God is bearing witness through the death of her family that he has found her guilty of something. And she says that the sovereign God is afflicting her. And the narrator here, he doesn't tell us whether or not Naomi is guilty of some sin that has brought all this on her. Naomi herself doesn't confess any sin. All she tells us is how she feels. She feels that God is coming against her. That's all we know. We really can't say anything about the backstory. We can just know what we see here. We don't know if she was blameless like Job, suffering for reasons that had nothing to do with any disobedience to God. Or if she was more like David, who often suffered because of his sin. We don't know. All we know is that she has suffered, and all we know is how she feels about it. In and of itself, it's not wrong to lament the bitterness of a hard road that God sets us on. It's not wrong to acknowledge that God's in control. It's not wrong to acknowledge to Him that. God, this hurts. God wants us to cry out to him in that way when we're hurting. And you can't, if you read through the Bible, you're not going to go very far before you hit a lament from one of God's people saying, Lord, you're in control. This hurts. I don't really like this, Lord. Help me. And God never rebukes his people for lamenting to him, for crying to him. However, when you read those laments, usually there's some kind of note of trust in God, of hope that God is going to use this for some kind of good. But when we read what Naomi says here in chapter 1, she seems to lack that. All, All we hear is the bitterness of it. Naomi seems to lack the hope that arises in other laments. She seems to lack any kind of joy in the midst of what she's going through. The Bible teaches us that as believers, we can expect to go through hard times, but that as we go through those hard times, we can and should have hope and joy. Not that we shouldn't have grief, but that in the midst of the grief, in the midst of the pain, there should be hope and joy carrying us through. And the reason why we can have hope and joy is because We know that God is accomplishing something good through it for his glory and our good. We are never to suffer for the sake of suffering, which is where Naomi seems to be at the moment. It seems like she just thinks she's suffering for the sake of suffering. But that's not how we are to think when we go through suffering. Turn with me, if you will, to James chapter 1, which instructs us how we should respond when the Lord does bring us through painful times. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, he says, "'Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials.'" Now, be careful, he's not saying don't feel sad ever, no. He's saying in the midst of the grief, in the midst of the sadness, count it, joy, what you are going through. Why? Verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The reason why, when we are going through something that is ripping us apart, why we can take that and put it into the joy category of life is because we know that God is using that to bring himself glory and to make me more like himself. But that seems to be missing here in Naomi's response to what she is facing. This brings us to the next part of this this passage, which is the beautiful plan, the beautiful plan that God is beginning to bring about through verse, er, in verse 22. So we've looked at the bitter providence. Now we're going to see hints of what God is beginning to do through the bitter providence. In her hopelessness, I want you to, to get this from this verse. I want you to see what Naomi is overlooking in the midst of her grief. What is she overlooking here? Verse 22. So Naomi returned, and with her, Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab. There's no doubt that Naomi has lost much. And if you have never lost a spouse, if you've never lost a child, which I have not, you cannot understand the depths of pain That Naomi is going through. So I don't mean to gloss over it. Please don't hear me saying Naomi should just get over it. No, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that in the midst of that, God is still sustaining us by His grace. And He's doing that for Naomi, but she can't see it right now. She can't see it. But the narrator is helping us to see it. It's not wrong that to Naomi, her circumstances taste very bitter. But she is so very focused on what she's lost that she is not seeing what she has gained. Remember what Naomi said back in verse 21. He said that the Lord had brought her back to Bethlehem as what? She went out full, but she came back empty. Now, is that completely true? No, it's not. Naomi did not travel that long road from Moab back to Bethlehem alone. Someone has been with her the whole way. Someone abandoned her own family and her own country in order to keep loving Ruth. Someone committed to her to the point of saying, not even death is going to come between you and me. And that someone is Ruth. And when we get to the end of this book, in chapter 4, verses 14 to 15, it will be said to Naomi that Ruth loves her and is better to her than seven sons. So yes, Naomi lost her husband and she lost her two boys. A painful loss that again, if, if we haven't experienced it, we can't understand. But in the midst of such painful loss, she has gained back better than seven sons in Ruth who left everything to walk the lonely road with her. Naomi only sees a frowning providence and she misses the signs that that frown of providence is turning into a smiling providence. Naomi does not see the grace of God sustaining her through this season of bitter providence. She's not seeing the grace of God flowing into her life through her daughter-in-law, Ruth. She only sees God's affliction of her. She only sees God's emptying of her. She does not see God's grace sustaining her, even though it's standing right next to her in her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Just to bring this to us, to apply this to us, for the believer in the one true God, there is never a reason to be without hope, and there is never a reason to be without joy, no matter how much you're suffering. And I'm not saying that we don't lament and we don't grieve and we don't acknowledge the hurt, but I'm saying, the Bible is saying that there's joy and there's hope in the midst of it. And that is because when you suffer, though God may take away certain blessings from you, he will never take away his grace from you if you are trusting in Christ. And that's a lesson that the Apostle Paul learned. Let's go over to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul was a man who lost more than most. And yet God used him more than most and God showed him wondrous things, amazing revelations of his glory and of truth. Verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. What is this thorn in the flesh? A messenger of Satan to torment me. So that's the thorn. Who gave him the thorn? God did. God did. Why? To keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. What does that tell you about how this thorn is making Paul feel? If it's driving him to his knees, if it's causing him to beg God and to beg God repeatedly to take it away, that tells you that this is incredibly painful to Paul. Verse 9, And he, God, has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, Paul says, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content. You see, in the midst of his sorrow and grief over the pain, in the midst of it, he is well-content. I am well-content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul learned that if he had the grace of God, he had enough. He learned that any suffering that the Lord brought into his life was an occasion for the power of Christ to be put on display within him. And you know that the glory of Jesus, that Jesus being glorified was everything to Paul. So if his suffering was going to result in that, he was well content with it. Can you and I say the same thing? I confess I I need the Lord's help in getting there. Spilt milk will cause me to to not be content, which is a problem. But this is a lesson that we all need to learn, and it's a lesson that Naomi is learning and will no doubt learn by the end of the book. The narrator back in Ruth, he closes this section with an interesting comment about the timing of Naomi and Ruth's return. The second half of verse 22, he says, And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. The barley crop was the first crop to ripen come harvest time in Israel. And according to the Mosaic law, as I understand it, harvest time would begin the day after the Sabbath following Passover. Harvest time would begin in this way, the I assume the priest would present to the Lord a sheaf of the first fruits of the harvest. And if you want to read about that, write down Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus 23, verses 5 through 14, where Moses talks about the timing of celebrating the Passover and how uh, the day of first fruits would occur following the Sabbath. Which followed the Passover and what the, that procedure of offering the first fruits to God involved. It involved taking the sheaf of the first fruits, that bundle of grain stalks, and waving it before God. And that sheaf that would be waved, it would have been a barley sheaf because that was the first crop that was harvested each year. So you see that. The beginning of barley harvest, this is talking about the first fruits of the harvest. Just as a side note, this isn't really the point of this passage, but it's too cool to not mention. Jesus was raised from the dead on Sunday, which was the day after the Sabbath following the Passover, the day of first fruits. That very day that the first fruit offering of a barley sheaf would be waved before the Lord, that was the day Jesus was raised from the dead. And what does Paul call Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15 20? The first fruits of the resurrection. But I want you to think about this note the beginning of barley harvest. We saw earlier in this first chapter in verses 1 through 6 we saw that there was a parallel between the city of Bethlehem and Naomi. In verse 1 we saw Bethlehem which Means what? House of bread. We saw Bethlehem emptied of bread by famine. And then we saw Naomi's life systematically emptied of her husband and her two sons. Then in verse 6, we were told that God had visited his people in giving them bread. God had brought an end to the famine, and the news got to Naomi somehow that crops were growing good, there was going to be a harvest. And by the time she gets back to Bethlehem, the first crop to to ripen, the barley crop, has started to be harvested. God is filling the house of bread with bread again. And the barley harvest is the first fruits of the harvest season. The promise of more to come. So that first fruits of harvest season are being gathered in as Naomi arrives in Bethlehem. Now, Naomi doesn't notice it, but God has visited her as well. God has already begun filling her life again with a sort of first fruits. You see, Ruth is to Naomi what the barley harvest is to Bethlehem. God is restoring Naomi's life, even though she doesn't know it. Ruth was the first fruits, but the full harvest is Of restoration for Naomi will not be hinted at until the end of this book. We find out at the end of this book that legally Naomi will gain a son through Ruth, a son that we learn will be the ancestor of King David. King David who is the ancestor of who? The Messiah, Jesus. So Naomi lost her husband and she lost her two sons but she gained Ruth who was better to her than seven sons And ultimately, she would gain, through this bitter providence, she would gain the Messiah, who would be better to her than a hundred sons. Naomi told the women of Bethlehem to call her Mara, bitter, because of what she was suffering. She didn't know that God was using the bitterness to bring a sweetness into her life and into the lives of others that neither she nor they could even begin to imagine. And think about how this applies to you as a believer. You will face bitter providences. And when you face those times, do not forget that the promises of God belong to you in Jesus Christ. This time of year, we are remembering that Jesus died for our sins and he rose from the dead to give us new life in him. And when you are going through bitter providences, remember that if you know Christ, the Lord will never take his grace away from you. And he will never take from you what he will not restore back to you a hundredfold. The very last passage we'll look at is Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 verses 28 to 30. Mark 10, verse 28, Peter began to say to him, Jesus, behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Do you see that in Christ, you and I have someone who is better to us than 100 times of whatever it is we lose in the course of following after him? Without Christ, when you face bitter providences, there is no tree that will make it sweet for you because you've rejected the tree that Christ died on that can bring you that sweetness there's only the bitterness of the wrath of God but if you trust in Jesus Christ that tree has been thrown into the bitterness of your life and those waters are transformed into sweetness because God is using the hard things to make you someone that brings glory to God and that looks like Jesus So when life gets hard for you, Christian, don't forget to run to Jesus because he is the sweetness that overpowers and overwhelms the bitterness. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in Jesus we have someone who is a hundred times better than anything that, that we would lose, no matter how painful that loss may be. Jesus more than makes up for it all, which is saying a lot. Because to lose a spouse, to lose children, that is a soul-ripping loss. How great is Jesus that he would bring sweetness to something so hard. Lord, help us to value the Lord Jesus. Help us to count him the treasure above all treasures, we pray in his name. Amen.